Welcome to Supersized Science. This podcast features research and discoveries nationwide enabled by advanced computing technology and expertise at the Texas Advanced Computing Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jorge Salazar, a science writer at TAC. Viruses lurk in the gray area between the living and the non-living, according to scientists. Like living things, they replicate, but they don't do it on their own. Viruses need a host cell, and through infection, they hijack it and force it to make copies of itself. Supercomputer simulations have helped uncover the mechanism for how the HIV-1 virus imports into its core the nucleotides it needs to fuel DNA synthesis, a key step in its replication. It's the first example found where a virus performs an activity such as recruiting small molecules from a cellular environment into its core to conduct a process beneficial for its life cycle. The simulation work was supported by Exceed, the extreme science and engineering discovery environment funded by the National Science Foundation, and it was carried out on the Stampede 2 system here at the Texas Advanced Computing Center, as well as on the Bridges system at the Pittsburgh Supercomputing Center. Exceed awarded supercomputing access and expertise to biophysical chemist Juan R. Perea and his lab at the University of Delaware. Chaui Xu, a graduate student in the Perea lab, was the lead author on the HIV viral capsid work, published with Perea and other scientists December 2020 in the journal PLOS Biology. Xu and Perea join us now on the podcast to talk about their research. Thanks for joining us on Supersized Science. Uh, thank you, Jorge, for your interest in our research. What are the main findings of your study on HIV-1 viral replication? And this was published in December of 2020 in the journal PLOS Biology. The main finding from this piece of work, which took several years, is that the virus has evolved this mechanism to import nucleotides into the intact core of the virus. So you can... I think the main point is that this is the first time that anyone has shown and proved that a virus can have such activity as transporting some sort of small molecule from one environment to the other to conduct some sort of process that is beneficial for its life cycle. Dr. Shu, did you want to add anything to that? Um... In this world, we have collaborated with many research groups together and we use different kinds of techniques uh, for our part, we use MD simulation, and we also collaborate with the experimental group that uses uh, AFM, uh, which is atomic force microscopy, I think, and also TEM. Uh, yeah, some experimental technique, also biological state. So together we study the, how the nucleotide and also how the HIV capsid that uh, is permeability to some small molecule also include nucleotide and IP6 and also others, yeah. I just want to clarify that I got it right, because you said in the, in the collaborations, did you say UTSM or what, what was that? So, so yeah, we, we didn't work with anybody at UT, uh, University of Texas system. What he was saying is AFM, which is atomic force microscopy. What this technique means is that you have this cantilever that essentially taps on the surface of some sample and then you can directly measure the flexibility uh, or rigidity of, of the sample. I think the point that Xiaoyi was trying to communicate is that this is not only a computational work, but it also includes a lot of validation from experimentalists. And it's in that regard is a 
pretty impressive endeavor in, in the sense that a lot of things that were predicted on the computer were then brought to the experimentalist that then tested our predictions, both in using uh, AFM experiments, but also doing biological assays uh, in living cells. So I think this breaks a little bit with the tradition of computational science, looking at isolated systems, not really in the context, not always in the context of, you know, very complex biological picture. Uh, here we took the work beyond what we usually do in, in the sense that even though it took a little bit longer to get the paper out, we made sure that all of our predictions were validated, validated experimentally. You know, it's rare for a computational paper to be in a biology journal like this one. And the reason this is possible is because we really are discovering new biology. The biology is related to this ability of the virus to import small molecules that it needs for certain metabolic pathways. In the context of HIV is the fuel for the reverse transcription that occurs inside of the capsid. So HIV and other retroviruses are very particular because they contain a protein called reverse transcriptase, which essentially what it does is taking a template, an RNA template, they're able to reverse transcribe a DNA template. That DNA template is ultimately what gets integrated in the human cells, in, in the nucleus of the cell. So uh, typically, and this is something that has been the classical view of viral capsids, is that there are this container that just opens and closes, kind of like an eggshell, right? It just protects the egg, but it doesn't really have any active role. For the longest time, it was thought that it didn't have any active role of, of the several processes that occur in the cytoplasm. But in this series of experiments and computational predictions, what we've shown is that the capsid itself uh, plays an active role in the infective cycle. It regulates the reverse transcription, you know, the, how the viral DNA is synthesized inside of the capsid. And these processes, you know, have been are the result of, you know, millions of years of co-evolution between the virus and, and the target cell. So in a way, it also allows us to look a little bit of how the cell itself is interacting with the virus. The computational part was pretty technically challenging and in its correctness was validated through statistical methods and you know the, the highest rigor that exists in our field of computational biophysics. And similarly, the other techniques that were employed in the paper, AFM, TEM, which is transmission electromicroscopy, all the infectivity assays where our colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh and in Harvard Medical School, they take the, our predictions. So we tell them, look, this amino acid is key. And the way that we can test this model is by introducing this specific mutation. Let's, let's uh, instead of having a lysine there, let's put an asparagine, let's put an alanine. And we should see that the virus is unable to, to perform reverse transcription. The trick there is, is twofold because the, when you introduce these mutations, you are at risk of altering the suprastructure of the molecule in a way is like you don't allow, if by introducing these substitutions, you don't allow the virus to form the mature cone or this specific morphology that is required by the virus. But at the same time, we're trying to keep that morphology, but prevent it from being permeable, 
to prevent it to, from regulating the passage of small molecules through it. So how to do that? It took us a lot of ingenuity and obviously the computer simulations are much cheaper than, you know, like doing a lot of uh, experiment, experiments like without you know, knowing what you're expecting. So we tested all that in silico and we were able to tell the experimentalists, look, uh, this is what we think is gonna happen if you introduce this mutation, if you introduce this mutation. So they go express the protein and uh, because they're experts in doing these uh, assembly experiments, they can check with TEM, they can check the morphologies and we see, okay, there are spheres or there are cones or there are tubes. So we know that the ability of the virus to form the particles is intact. So then the next question is, okay, can the nucleotide still permeate? So that, that's the tricky part because, okay, there is not a direct measurement of like, you know, if you can tag it, the nucleotide and say, okay, we're, we're seeing it outside and then you see it inside, that'll be an easy test. But unfortunately, there is not such uh, experimental assay that has been developed to date. So rather than doing that, it is measured indirectly. And the way it is measured is uh, we introduce a substitution and then you look for the amount of DNA that's been produced inside of the core or inside of the capsid and you take samples at specific given times, then you build a histogram of how much DNA is being produced in the wild type versus how much DNA is being produced in the, with the substitution. And you see that the, even though you have very good morphologies with the substitution, the amount of DNA that is being produced is less. So that's an indicative that the virus ability to permeate nucleotides has been compromised. And um, so we prove that this is the case in different cell types. So, you know, our body is made of several different types of cells. So HIV is particularly good infecting T cells and uh, macrophage. And, you know, they're, as, they're very different cells, even though, you know, they're single cells, they're very different in the way they work and the, the way that HIV infects them. And we did show that this particular mechanism is conserved independent of the cell line type. So it was, well, it was conserved for both uh, T cells and macrophage. So that also provides stronger evidence that this mechanism is conserved in HIV for this particular issue, which we interpreted as it's, it's, has been, the virus actually has evolved in this way. On that last note, we did some comparative analysis to other, these are called lentiviruses, which are viruses that ultimately integrate their genome into the cell. And that comparative analysis was done with the CAT version of HIV, which is called FIV, with the equine version of HIV, which is uh, called EIAV, and also with the, <clears throat> um, with the bovine version, uh, the B BIV. And uh, there, that's the, those comparative analyses reveal that that mechanism seems to be conserved among all, all, all lentiviruses. So this is uh, very important for the retrovirus field. And I think at large, it's also very important for how we look at viruses in, and particularly how we look at non-enveloped viruses and the role that capsids play in the cytoplasm, like I think this classical view that capsids are just a static container that prevents recognition of the RNA and DNA by the host cell has been completely 
been rewritten in the past 10, 15 years. So this is our current view as of 2021. And as we learn more about virus capsids, we realize that they play a very active role in the life cycle of the virus. And, and I think that's what's key about this manuscript is, uh, is perhaps the first, uh, at least to, to my knowledge, the first piece of work that comprehensively show an active role of the capsids on regulating a very specific life cycle of the virus, not only computationally, but also you know, uh, in in vitro assays and ultimately in cells. So I think that's what's so what I find so unique of this paper. And I think of it as a very rare example where computational biophysics breaks that barrier and is not only applicable to the in vitro experiment, like very control environment, but also makes all the way through cells. So I, I think it's very unique in that regard as well. And yeah, all, all the simulations were designed by Chaoyi and I, and Chaoyi performed all, all the simulations using the Exceed resources and also some other NSF-funded resources that are available for, for this type of work. Uh, maybe a, a question for Dr. Xu. Um, since I know you're more hands-on with using the computational resources, um, could you speak to some of the challenges that you faced in doing this work? Yeah, sure. So uh, I can say that without uh, supercomputers, this work is computational part. Uh, this computational part is impossible. So the challenge we have is that the biological problem, which is a nucleotide translocation, it would take a longer time scale that maybe impossible to run the regular simulation on this. So we use a technique called umbrella sampling combined with Hamiltonian replicate change. The advantage of using these techniques is that we can separate the whole translocation process into small windows. And each, in each small windows, we run individual MD simulations. So we turn a single process into multiple small processes. And so that we can, uh, using the parallelism and run these small simulations in parallel on supercomputer. That's how we solve these problems and, and also these challenges. And by using the resources provided from the XC, so we are able to run not only test nucleotide translocation, but also uh, test some small molecules bonding in fact this translocation process by showing the, the free energy differences that calculate from our results. And um, would you speak more specifically to what Exceed resources you used? They provide hardware, software, and expertise, um, as well as programs. The um, Exceed Collaborative Support Services, ECSS, they have campus champions in, in power where they um, where they have uh, student interns, undergraduate interns um, that uh, I, I spoke to. I had the privilege of speaking to in the, in the Padilla lab uh, last time I spoke to y'all. Um, but yeah, what re, what exceed did you use, and um, and how did they help you overcome some of these challenges? Because this project lasts for about two or three years, so we we have used this many uh, supercomputer power to finish project. Uh, in terms of SE, we use the Stampy and also Stampy 2. Stampy is the older version of Stampy 2. And yeah, I think these two super compute. Oh, I think we're also using some Bridges resources, Bridges 1. We also use, um, and, and um, that we don't use, well, uh, we receive an immense amount of help from our Exit champion, Anita Schwartz. And she helps us uh, 
with everything that is related to Exit. Uh, we also take advantage of the training programs. Um, Choi is pretty senior in the group, but the younger members of the group, they, they take advantage of the many training opportunities. I think um, I think you, you yourself did, did take some of the Exit workshops at the beginning, right, Choi? Uh, yes, yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, they are very helpful. How did it go with using the, the Stampede system? Yes, I think when I started running these kind of simulations, I was at the end of the Stampede 1, yeah. And then when I transferred from Stampede 2 and Stampede, uh, Stampede 1 to Stampede 2, I can feel, feel that the hardware is a big improvement. And there are more nodes that provide so that I can run more uh, replica uh, simulations. And, and what about um, the Bridges system? So they're being extremely, I mean, same as uh, TAC, uh, PSC has been extremely generous to us and very supportive of, you know, an assistant professor starting a lab, which is not an easy task. And I find that they're being extremely supportive of our work. The machine itself bridges, we use it quite a bit. I would say that the the queue becomes kind of an issue when when there is a storm coming because there's a lot of weather modeling there and then our jobs lose priority. It's the day-to-day life of using a share of resource like uh, bridges or tack or anything like that. The big advantages that Chai was saying moving from Stampede to Stampede 2 were, I mean, part of the Sky Lakes. At the time, we were really fascinated with those. They were fantastic. Uh, on bridges, we have taken advantage of their high memory mode nodes. They have this massive memory machines with like six terabytes, 12 terabytes of inline memory. We've used them for analysis. They're not really good for the simulation, but they're really, really good for analysis. They, they provide a very unique service to the community. They also have the DGX machine for AI that we have employed. That's a pretty nice piece of hardware. And uh, we've been fortunate enough that we had been part of the early user science program for Bridges 2. So uh, Chaoyi here has been running a lot of simulations there. You know, I, I, we really enjoy this early science. We know it comes with a, with a trade-off that the machine might not be still optimal, but we also are, they want us to do like, you know, hammer as hard as we can the machine. So we're happy to do that because we have a lot of work that needs to be done. And, and we just uh, we just do that. So Chai has some experience with Bridges too at this point. We have a new exit resource here on campus at University of Delaware. This is our first attempt to a supercomputer. It's called Darwin. And it's, it was deployed last year. It's a very small machine. It's very similar to Bridges 2. And we have uh, actually on Friday, the Darwin Symposium coming out. And what's been really good is that uh, because uh, students in the group have had such opportunity to train in you know, these fantastic machines provided by Exit, they're now at the point that they are expanding that knowledge to other people here on campus and you know, explaining the details of how to make the best use of the resource. You know, it's, it's a very limited resource, extremely precious. And now I think that culture exists in the lab, perhaps is uh, exists in other places here at UD, but we're, we're really eager to share our, you know, all the, all the experience we gather through the years with other users or possible users, potential users here on campus to, you know, advance 
the supercomputing and all that it can do. So I guess uh, all this work, real, all this work by Exit really has supported our research program and supported the students, their learning. And well, now that we have a, an Exit resource here on campus is also helping us create a local community that is as passionate about HPC as we are, you know, that's, it's always nice. For non-scientists, could you speak to how this research on the HIV-1 capsid um, that you've been discussing, how does this research relate to, um, to non-scientists? Primarily, and with, and it's a common theme in most of our research, it provides a new target for therapeutic development. There is not a cure for HIV. There is uh, several therapeutics, and as we've learned from 20 years of antiretrovirals, there is constant need to optimize those drugs because the virus keeps getting resistance to these drugs. So this provides a new target that has not been exploited. From a fundamental basic perspective, it also opens a new window to our knowledge and understanding of viruses, right? Uh, something that was not seen before and was not part of the scientific canon on viruses is this provides more evidence to that thought. And we all know how relevant viruses are. So I'm like, I mean, I guess we always know that, but um, it also provides new views of how to look at other viruses and what some of their proteins might be doing and not be so closed in our preconceptions about what you know structural proteins might be doing and learning that they may I mean, it's an invitation for other scientists to think about novel functions of these old proteins. I mean, that's, that's perhaps also a contribution for, for non-scientists or not HPC scientists or retrobiologists or, but, you know, molecular biologists and other biologists at large. What's the most important thing that you want people to know about using supercomputers to investigate uh, this HIV-1 capsid? Well, first of all is, I mean, the experts make it look extremely easy. It's very easy to make honest mistakes. I think the level of rigor that goes in, in the simulations is very high from a statistical point of view, from um, a rigor, scientific rigor, or, and also from the quality of the work, the time, the attention to details. It's a very careful endeavor and it's easy to overlook details, so it's required a lot of attention. Supercomputers are also very specialized instruments, and it's, it's not like you can just go and use them. It requires a lot of training and also a new mindset to really start using them effectively. So I, I will say that we're very enthusiastic about supercomputers and what they can do and what they allow us to pose the scientific questions, but it also may give the wrong impression that it's easy and it's not, it's, it requires a lot of hard work, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of this intrinsic passion for, for answering these questions because it's, it's, it's as hard as any other science, that is, as experimental science is extremely peculiar and also it's in a way is like when we do work like where we're doing where 
you're pushing the envelope, you don't really have much places to look. How did they do that? How somebody else do that work? So that, that also it's in itself, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but also requires a lot of careful considerations before you don't want to overstate your findings and then realize that they're just an experiment on a computer. It's, you, you want to reproduce biology, right? It's at the end, that's the ultimate goal of what we do and what supercomputers enable us to do. I just want to add more uh, thoughts, which I think supercomputer provides uh, another unique angle in addition to the commonly used tools that to study HIV. So we glad that the XD could provide this opportunity to, to us so that we can publish, for example, these papers. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jorge, for the interest. You've been listening to Juan R. Perea and Chaoui Xu of the University of Delaware. Supersized Science is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the hosts and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar. Thank you.